For October 23rd, 2017, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 486. I just click accept on all social contracts. This is Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are hanging out together and talking about the things that are on our mind. The movies, the music, the TV, uh, the cultural topics of all kinds uh, that are interesting to think about, but fascinating to talk about with this crew. I'm Matt Rather, and the crew today consists of me, Mr. Peter Fenzel. Hello, Matt. And Mr. Mark Lee. Hey there. And uh, this week, it's, uh, it's a tour. It's a map of the Eastern Seaboard. That's a deep podcast reference for, uh, for people who have been listening for all nine years of our existence. Uh, we're, we're, uh, we're talking, we're talking the, uh, the New York Project and Florida by St. Vincent. Oh, wait, no. It's the other way around. <laughs> it's the Florida Project, New York by St. Vincent, and uh, a new album uh, coming out soon that is a, uh, a fascinating kind of fusion album called North of Sunset, West of Vine. That's right. We are taking the three corners of our triangular country. And uh, considering works of art named after uh, various various parts of it, so we start with the Florida Project. Uh, Pete, it, this is I understand that this is a uh, a film um, directed by Sean Baker, who I understand made uh, Tangerine, um, which was a, a a film that you can see on Netflix that uh, a lot of people were really excited about a couple years ago. Tangerine, I think, was shot. Uh, entirely on iPhones or uh, something, so it had a. Uh, in addition to being a compelling story that people sort of latched onto, there was a, a neat production thing about it as well. And uh, this is the uh, the follow up, I guess, from Sean Baker. Can you tell us a little bit about what the Florida Project is and and uh, what your reactions to it were? Yeah, sure. And I'll keep it spoiler free because I don't anticipate anybody has watched this yet uh, or many of you because it's it's in limited release right now. I enjoy it. You can go see it in the theater. It's great. The Florida Project is a movie that is depicting poverty. That is the most sensible thing that it is doing. The other sensible thing that it is doing it is it is located outside of Disney World in Central Florida. That is the the location of the movie is very powerful and, and very much speaks to what the movie is about and its vocabulary of symbolism, which is, by the way, really pronounced. There is a ton of symbolism in this movie. So it's a little girl, six-year-old girl, played by a name you will hear again, Brooklyn Prince. She is being celebrated for this role. I would not be surprised if she got a Best Supporting Actress nomination for this role. Uh, it is one of those great child performances in film that will be talked about in the context of who was the greatest person who was too young to actually be an actor, who did a great job in a movie. And Brooklyn Prince will be up there in this movie as a sassy, angry, uh, foul-mouthed, running-around uh, six-year-old girl who is also beautiful and adorable and, and has a powerful sense of soul about her and her single mom who is trying to make ends meet in a place where there isn't really a lot of economic opportunity. Uh, and so the movie tracks the increasing desperation of her mother to attempt to keep them in a motel, which is referred to as the Magic Castle. Everything is sort of Hydrox off-brand Disney. Like, the idea of Disney is out there, but for us, we don't get real Disney. We get the reflection of Disney, the adulteration of Disney, the sort of fake Disney. The um, And I want to talk about this with some of the other things we talk about later in the podcast, but the title of the movie comes up over a stuccoed concrete wall that's painted a bright purpley pink. And I feel like that really reflects the tone of the movie, the spirit of the movie, the brightness of the pink, the vividness of it, how you can see the texture of the wall, but that it is in fact a concrete wall and not a very nice one. Uh, there's another symbol where the little girl is sitting outside of a place that sells oranges on the highway where there is a painting of people picking and eating oranges, and the little girl bonks her head back against the wall, which is concrete. So there's this idea of the notion of oranges, but they are not nourishing. These oranges are the oranges of 
capitalism. Uh, it's a very anti-capitalist movie. I had a long discussions with the people I saw this with afterward. I describe this as one of the best movies I've seen in terms of encapsulating what I would see as the viewpoint of young American uh, anti-capitalism. Sort of really hard left stuff about uh, the failure, the broad failure of institutions, the broad failure of institutional authority, a lot of intersectional gender and racial criticism in this movie. But it's all baked into the symbolism, the little girl and her friends and the authority figures who watch out for them but don't really watch out for them all the time, and also the role of business and the state. So it all kind of ties together. Is it a movie that maps onto our discussion from last week at all about the sort of the 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 benevolent and malignant and benign uh, conspiracies, the sort of triangle of uh, the triangle of misaligned interests that powers uh, like sci-fi coming of age films? Interestingly, I feel like it confounds it. Huh. It confounds this expectation. And I, I know I've said a lot of sort of inters, interspersed things about this movie and not really a sort of coherent thesis statement about it, partly because I don't want to give away what happens. But one thing that is very constant through this movie is every rule or decision or punishment, and there are many, is up for negotiation. Every time somebody says, you have to do this, the reply is, you, don't, you can't tell me what to do. Or some sort of, oh, no, I won't do it. No, I won't do this. No, no, no. And then there's a, there's a live negotiation that happens, and sometimes the person ends up doing what the sort of higher status, moral, authoritative person wants to do. Most of the time, they don't. Um, a good example is, is what about um, uh, the little girl at the beginning of the movie spits on a car uh, for fun. And the owner of the car calls out the little girl and her friends for spitting on the car and uh, says that it's been disrespectful to the car, calls the mom owner over, and there is a long argumentative discussion about really negotiating the power relationship about whether the girl is in fact going to be punished for spitting on the car or how, and whether people respect the car as an object that ought to be respected. And it ends up with the kids cleaning the car, but the kids luring other kids who weren't responsible for it into also cleaning the car, breaking down this idea of crime and punishment, breaking down this idea of the possession is the thing that's really important and property needs to be protected. Uh, the adults are all smoking weed and getting high and having a good time. And so there's this idea of sharing. There's this idea of we've renegotiated the social order in a way that lets us live our authentic experience. So what I would say is that these are not people who have the protection of a benign conspiracy. The, the part of the benign conspiracy in this movie is played by Willem Dafoe in, in, a, nice, in a nice turn. <laughs> Willem Dafoe is the Kevin Costner in Hidden Figures of the Florida Project. Okay. Uh, did, did you see uh, Hidden Figures? Yeah, of course. I mean, we talked so about it in the podcast, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, we did. So uh, in, the, in Hidden Figures, Kevin Costner plays the white male manager who is against racism uh, partly mostly because it makes it hard for him to do his job. You get the sense that he objects to it on an ideological standpoint, but he is also merely a middle manager, does not have the real authority to fix the problem, uh, and then doesn't really go all the way all the time in ways that would make you really feel like he was on your side, but does make gestures that are powerful and resonant and that you're glad to see to help people. And so Willem Dafoe plays the sort of down, sort of down in his luck uh, divorced manager of this crappy motel who uh, is the only real sheriff in town for these people. And so there are times where he will chastise someone for doing something wrong, like if the kids shut down the electricity for the whole hotel by pulling a lever they're not supposed to pull. And it's sort of funny that he can't really punish them and they, you know, they're sort of above his authority. By the same token, they're small children. Then there's a scene where he like uh, stops a pedophile who might potentially be hurting the children. And it's like, oh, okay, he's helping them, right? He's helping them, but he's sort of not really capable of helping them. And when the real big, powerful people shows up, he's really impotent and unable to do anything. So he sort of is the benign conspiracy, but he doesn't really provide much in the way of intermediation. And there's definitely not this idea that 
the the kids from Stranger Things have to exist in secret. This is not a secret. The little kids running around here are not doing so in secret. They're doing so in broad daylight. Everyone sees what they're doing. Everyone knows they're not following the rules. There's no real reason that the kids can perceive for them to follow the rules. And that makes it different from the paradigm we talked about last week of the benevolent conspiracy, the malevolent conspiracy, and then the sort of benign conspiracy that separates the two. In that, in things like Stranger Things, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the Monster Squad, or and all that, the young kids who are fighting evil have to keep the fact that they're fighting evil from their parents uh and in this movie there there's really the parents really aren't there that's to in- intermediate between the evils of the world and the kids yeah that's in- that's interesting what's missing what's missing is a kind of reliable uh you know stable and unchallenged source of authority right like because you get yeah. the sense in et that like the parents could put a stop to the whole adventure if only they knew about it and it sounds like these kids are sort of running wild uh a little more because the 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 adults have sort of abdicated um the possibility of taking care of them though though uh, it's interesting i mean you, you sort of the way you describe it with like uh walls a focus on walls the idea of a castle which is a you know a kind of enclosed city right um d- defined by walls you know the idea of a kind this this is a kind of the idea of a, a mini society right like a, a small um you know, whatever, a small microcosm uh, of of a utopia that both kind of rejects or not. I mean, it doesn't sound like a utopia, but uh, uh, that's the it's a, it's, you know, of a of a it's, a, t- it's a topia. You know how utopias and dystopias are kind of two sides of the same sides of the same coin. Yeah, sure. Like this is a topia. Yeah. It's neither a I utopia mean, nor a dystopia. There's a, there's a utopia. There's a dystopia. Yeah. There's an autopia at Disneyland where you drive race go or you drive go karts like um the, yeah, exactly. That that it's a it's a society it's a society in microcosm and and some of the things that you you know some of the things that that you describe are are really interesting. I mean the the one thing that strikes me is that like with with the sort of rejection of capitalism, right? Like with with a film that is is critical or like a let's say a rejection of enlightenment political philosophy more generally right sure uh that which which would include things like the natural authority of the government over the people right. the social contract between the people and the government yeah. the idea of that order is as a natural way and rational way that people ought to organize themselves as opposed well, to tradition yeah. like things like that I, yeah. I mean i also think it's sort of part of a larger uh, cultural movement that that goes beyond the kind of the current political moment uh, of like self conception as a citizen moving to self conception as a as a consumer right because mm-hmm. the idea that like well who I never opted into this social contract I want to send this social contract back to Amazon like I I just click <laughs> I just click accept on all social contracts because <laughs> no one no one reads those things anyway. Um, you know, and if it tells me that I have to go into binding arbitration instead of you know, you you're not the boss of me anyway. I I I digress. Yeah. Um, that the, the um, that capitalism is a precondition for the microcosmic societies that reject capitalism, right? Like because if you're talking yeah. about it, if you have a car, right, and there is a there is a kind of communal uh, a set of communal discourses uh, about respect, about sharing, about punishment, about who, about authority, things like this uh, around a car. Um, the uh, you know uh, that there's uh, there still is outside of the castle, outside of the magic castle, a decidedly non magical structure that is the precondition for the production of a car. Yeah, you know? another yeah, exactly. Another symbol in the movie that works exactly this way is the ice cream shop where the kids go because the three kids they walk you know down the highway by themselves for what seems like miles, and there's a little ice cream kiosk, and the kids beg for money from adults around the ice cream kiosk, and then buy one ice cream, and then they walk back and they pass the ice cream back and forth, and each taste the ice cream, and there's a whole bunch of things going on there where the kids enjoying the ice cream is definitely and unambiguously a good thing that the kids being happy the kids having ice cream the kids liking the ice cream is good um the kids sharing the ice cream is good and the kids sharing the ice cream i think is being posited as a more positive sort of alternative to the idea that you only can get things that you can afford and yet were it not for the capitalist system the ice cream shop would not be there 
right? And and then they would not be able to beg the money from the tourists who come to Disney World to buy the ice cream. And and so I don't know what level in a really robust sense the movie is interacting with that but your statement was dead on this idea of the development of anti-capitalist microcosm cultures depends on sort of dwelling within this capitalistic framework and if the capitalistic framework were to just go away then it would fundamentally transform these microcosms like the, these people would not be able to live this way if they weren't right outside disney world right uh yeah then that's that's sort of part and parcel of what this experience seems to be like that they're talking about the way it's yep. it's oh sorry mark you go yeah, no, Pete, I want to hear you more talk a little bit more about how much uh, the presence of Disney does or doesn't loom over everything that happens here. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm catching references to it here and there. Um, it, if I had to guess, it sounds like the kids don't spend all of the entire movie pining about visiting the Magic Kingdom uh, and things like that. It's more just kind of like you see the, the, the byproduct of the horrible capitalist machine that Disney is, uh, is, a, is, is a key perpetrator of. Is, is that right? Well, sort of, yeah. It's it's tricky to say because the the capitalist machine isn't really in the movie at least is invested a little bit more in than in just Disney. And it's probably the weakest part of the movie is the parts of the movie where they the director gets really auteurish about what the parts of the capitalist machine are that, that create these circumstances. Like there's a shot of a gun shop. Right, that's like American-made machine guns. Get an American machine gun, and guns don't play into the movie at all. And it's just sort of like importing a particular political touch point that that sort of relates to what we're talking about. And and this, um, there's a feeling of comfort in the associations of the issues of political coalitions that doesn't necessarily like always rationally match up with what uh, the sort of immediate concerns of the moment are. Um, this idea that that rich people come to this area to go to Disney, the kids don't even really seem that aware that Disney is a thing that exists. Um, they seem like partially aware of it, but not really. They never ask to go to Disney, as far as I can tell. Um, they're just sort of always on the outside. And maybe there are these sort of fake Disney gift shops. What it is, here's what it really boils down to, is that Disney has an aesthetic and I'm going to I'm going to take it out of Disney because just for a second because putting it in Disney is makes it really hard to look straight at it because it's just so bright. Uh, have you ever guys ever been to like a Brigham's? I don't I don't think they exist anymore. Maybe even something like a Friendly's, uh, a chain ice cream shop. Sure. Ice cream Friend, Friendly's, yes. Yeah. yeah, we had those yeah. uh, in our close to our college. Yeah. Yeah, and those are also Brigham's and Friendly's are both uh, from New England and so that's where I live. So that's why I have them around here although Brigham's recently has been closing down. I went into a Brigham's a few years ago, and all of the seats were like two and a half feet above the ground, and everything was bright primary or secondary colors. McDonald's is like this, too, in a lot of places. Not everywhere anymore, because now there's like cool McDonald's that have brushed brushed uh, stainless steel and such. But classic McDonald's is like red chair, yellow chair, right? Blue table, red walls. And and there's this – and I remember having this moment walking into this Brigham's of just being like, do do parents have to live in this nightmare world once they have children where, like, everything is super brightly colored? And, uh, and this idea that it's been made into a play space. And I, I think that there's something about Disney and about animation – that and about toys and, and toys and consumer culture with like kids backpacks and kids kids underpants and kids sheets and blankets uh you know hulk makes bath time fun you know, everything all of these sort of bright colors which are also branded colors make their way into all sorts of different areas of experience not just for children but for adults who have children and disney is like the beating heart of this that issues out this idea of this bright and colorful world that is the sort of fantasy of the ideal place where our children ought to be, where children ought to be. A child ought to be in a Disney place. And a Disney place has other characteristics that in a, in a sort of, um, I want to say, oh, I, I always mix up Baudelaire and Baudrillard, but um, in a sort of hyper-real situation in which we're mapping on a, a form of reality over the earth that we could observe if we didn't have this sort of like mapped on uh, notion. This idea that when you see the golden arches of McDonald's, you assume it means infinite hamburgers. When you see the Magic Kingdom, you assume it means like infinite joy and celebration for children. But the world is not actually like this. This is a map that we've mapped onto the world. And childhood that is invested in this idea of, of that is associated with these colors, which is more than just the colors. It's, it's song and dance. It's the relationship with character. 
the the idea of a princess. What is a Disney princess as distinct from actual European nobility? Is 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 a is a fraught and complicated question in itself. How can the Little Mermaid and Pocahontas and Mulan, you know, and Cinderella all have the same job? <laughs> Only in in this particular phantasmagoria that's been really clearly mapped. And I think that the Florida Project interacts with that phantasmagoria, and shows and and takes a place of poverty and deprivation and puts those colors on it in order to sort of help us access the childhood experience of it. Because there's an association between the children and those colors, and there's an association between those colors and the culture. But really, the, the way it's a way into the children, I think. I mean, does that make sense? This idea of the like bright and bright and powerful colors, maybe uh, almost like sort of sickly sometimes, just unnatural. Uh, yeah. But yeah, yeah. That um, like when I remember walking around in Disney, I think about like fake flagstones. I think about cool and reflective colors. I'm thinking about um, I think about the way that houses in general are often painted in the Caribbean, in the sort of whites and 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 pastel colors. You know, in, in sort of think about Miami, think about Puerto Rico, think about uh, parts of other parts of the Caribbean. That that's there to sort of reflect light and to keep things cool. But when we see it on TV. It's like, oh, tourism, celebration. Look, the ocean is so blue and clear. And, and, I, and I think about the feeling of looking at that. I would almost say it's associated with feeling hydrated, and then you go there and everything is salty and hot, and you don't feel hydrated, and you're thirsty. Um, yeah. When you say you go there, do you mean like you know, those actual places like in the Caribbean or, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. or, or to this particular place in the movie? No, no, no. Those, I, I I'm, I'm, I'm saying that like, that like this whole idea that – Florida and the Caribbean are bright and colorful all the time is kind of a water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink kind of mm. situation uh, it, with respect to people who are poor there, where you, you look around and there's this wonderful, beautiful bounty of, of color and, and spectacle that people from all over the world come to see. But for you, it can only – it provides you with something. It provides you with a certain amount of joy, and you interact with it too, and you find it beautiful. There's a lot of appreciating the natural beauty of the swamp in this movie. Uh, but, but the swamp is sort of rendered in a Disney-like fashion where there are no alligators. Uh, and um, But like you can enjoy the color. You can enjoy the warmth. You can enjoy the beauty. You can enjoy the beach. But – most people who go there as tourists also bring with them money and water, right? And the water is metaphorical and the money is not. Um, and so what do you have when you don't have the things that tourists bring with them into these places? And this is all, I think, associated not just – I'm getting a little bit beyond what this movie is talking about and more about what this movie's connection with Disney is and what the culture's connection with Disney is. Like I remember thinking – I mean, do you guys – none of us have kids, but – if we were to have kids, which we very well may, but no, you no, know, we, Lord- we three have a podcast together <laughs> <laughs> that we that we sort of co-parent. I don't got friends. I got family. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't got family. I got podcasts. Um, but um, you know, were we to have kids, it, there's this idea that kids need ought to go to Disney. And I'm thinking, and I think sometimes why? Like I've been to Disney when I was a kid. It was nice, but like, why would I need to go? It doesn't seem sure, like something yeah, but, that you know, I would have missed. Sure, like like uh, Quasi, the the you know budget uh, uh, amusement park in Connecticut is also nice, right? Yeah. Like, but then you, but then you start looking around New England and you're like, oh, there's no places that are really like Disney. And I think part of it is like, like yes, you could go to Quasi. You could go to like like Safari Golf on the Berlin Lake, Turnpike. Lake, lake uh, Compounds. <laughs> you could go to Rye Playland, right? right? Like in New York. Um, you, you, I mean, there's a lot of beautiful places you can go. You can go to Hampton Beach. You can you go to... For, for but, certain definitions of the word beautiful, I suppose. Well, I think, I mean, that's, I think that's really the subtitle of this movie. The Florida Project's certain definitions of the world beautiful. <laughs> right. The word beautiful. I mean, there's, there's, um, a, I, there's a larger kind of social point in a very, uh, you know, in what you're describing is a very symbolic movie. One that you've convinced me that I should go see uh, in theaters because the visual story seems to be... Uh, very important to it. Um, Which is that, like, there are no... You know what Disney... All of Disney's entertainment, their brand identity, their sort of branded, uh, their sort of themed attractions, right? Like, you know what all this is missing is any depiction of poverty, right? Like, Mm -hmm. any depiction of life, of the actual, of a kind of non-idealized experience of life uh, as, as you can find it. And so the idea, you know, the idea of being surrounded by... The idea of being surrounded by bright colors uh, and not having anything to um, 
you know, not, not being able to kind of actually live in the bright colors, for the bright co- colors to be almost a kind of like mocking, uh, you know, it's sort of a, a, a mocking uh, reminder of the things that your your life is is not like, right? Shiny, uh, un, unadulterated, um, uh, uh, sort of candy. You know what I mean? Sort of nourishing or or exciting somehow. That it's uh, you know that that this is kind of a, a point of the kind of the, the larger point about a, a, a kind of hidden underclass in in the United States, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. That that there, and then also I think there's um, there's still this notion that there are pretty places and ugly places, and the ugly places are poor and the pretty places are rich. Right. And I don't think, and I think what one thing that we've been seeing a lot, at least in the United States, and I don't know if our listeners abroad have been seeing it too. I don't know if they've seen the same sort of transformation. Is that the the poor places and the rich places are very much intermingled. Uh, in that, like, they could be they could be right next to each other, even more than it used to be. I mean, it always it's always been that way to an extent that there have been kind of rich neighborhoods and poor neighborhoods. But I mean, it's funny because we're talking about color. But when when all of the talk about kind of red states and blue states, one thing that keeps coming up in the analysis of it is it's actually a purple country. And, and by what they mean is, if you go down to the individual level of towns and neighborhoods, everywhere in America is stark separation of lifestyle and culture. Uh, from like mile to mile, you go to one county, you go to another county, you go to another county, another town, and the people might have like fundamentally different ideas. Now, there's not an infinite proliferation of different modes of living, but there's just not a geographic uh, consolidation of modes of living within specific uh, large places. So, and and that seems to be something of a phenomenon on the rise, largely because of the dislocation of industrial uh, employment and the idea that you would set up an employer and employ a lot of people in a given area, and as such, the area would share economic characteristic tied to the employer. And now that you know work is kind of online and more mobile and also harder to get and the service economy and how that works, uh, you need to have servants living by the people that they serve, uh, but not right by them, of course. Uh, this This creates this sort of... I mean, Swiss cheese is a lazy analogy, but, you know, let's chillax and, and use it, right? Like, just lots and lots of holes and lots of – it's not holes because there, there are places, too, that people live. But the idea that there's a place right next to Disney World where this stuff happens, and it's not like a shocking, you know, Victor Hugo French ghetto, although they do have uh, prostitutes with, you know, sort of beautiful and sad, tragic life stories. So there's that, but um, – yeah, that that it's it's part of the the abruptness of the change as you move from place to place over short distances, is is part of all this. Thank God for prostitutes with beautiful and tragic life stories, right? How else would men self actualize? <laughs> in, yeah, Rich, in, Richard Gere in is films. not in this movie. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Pretty. This is not a pretty woman movie. This is like a. I want. I want to say what it's like. A, I. I want to say that it's a solution to a pretty woody, pr- pretty woman problem, but I can't re- think of what the solution is that the movie represents. Sure. Maybe. Yeah. I like. Uh, but you have to see the movie for yourself, and you tell me what the solution is uh, that it represents because yeah. it's heavily symbolic as it's communicated. There's, you know, the second part of. I think it's the second part of. Uh, Notes from Underground, uh, Dostoevsky's novella. Is it long enough to be a novel or is it a novella? I don't know. It's a, a shorter work of fiction for yeah. uh, Dostoevsky um, or any Russian novelist of the period, I suppose. That uh, begins with uh, an epigraph that is a quote from a, uh, a poem, a then contemporary poem about uh, like rescuing a prostitute from the, the depths of, of uh, abjection and destitution, you know, um, and uh, and it's it's hideously mocked. It's like when I reached down into the gutter and pulled you up, brushed the dirt off of your beautiful <laughs> eyes, blah, 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 blah. Is that <laughs> Dostoevsky supplies this like et cetera, et cetera, et cetera uh, to the thing? So this is you know I mean li- you know, good literature has been calling BS on this trope for a long, long time. See the see the Florida Project. I think you'll be pleased. <laughs> you know, be- speaking of places where uh, extremes of wealth and poverty coexist, <laughs> uh, New York and Los Angeles are places that exist. <laughs> Indeed, they are. Uh, well, we, 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 Mark, uh, you're you're from New York. Has there been any work of art entitled New York recently that catches your imagination and might be pertinent? 
I mean, before I answer that question, nailed the segue. Nailed the segue. You did, you did. But before I answer that question, I want to interrogate for a brief moment this notion that I am quote unquote from New York. Uh, I appreciate that you think of me that way. Um, most of the listeners on this podcast uh, might conceive of me as being, quote unquote, from Alabama, which is where uh, I grew up. But I have been living in New York for the last uh, over 10 years or so. So New York is definitely home. Um, but uh, and yes, New York does have a, uh, a, a vast disparity of, of wealth and poverty. Um, but that's actually uh, I don't think it's the subject of the St. Vincent song and music video New York, which we're going to spend a, a moment talking about, um, uh, A, because it fits in our theme of places, but B, because it's something that's been really on my mind over the last uh, week or so since I discovered this. Um, so uh, I don't know. Should I provide how should I how should we start this conversation? I guess let's start maybe with the aesthetic portion of it, since it connects most closely with what we were just talking about. With the Florida project and how um, the pastel colors. Well, uh, we should say we should uh, say that first that this is a song off of St. Vincent's newest album uh, called Mass Education that uh, released a couple Fridays ago, and uh, it has a it has a video that you can see on YouTube and that we'll link up in the show notes. Is it mass education or is it mass seduction? Mass seduction. Mass Sorry, seduction. I, I had Lauren Hill on the brain because we've been we've been thinking about that on of uh, covering that on TFT, and uh, so I was I was thinking about the mass education of Saint Vincent. Hmm. Nice. Uh, so yeah, new Saint Vincent song, new Saint Vincent music video. Um, the pa- it it deploys uses pastel colors uh, similar to what we see in the Florida project very heavily. Um, to communicate, I'm not quite sure what. Um, we'll get to that in a second. Um, it, I guess a phantasmagoria of some sort uh, is a good way to, to describe it. Um, it is ostensibly a love letter or an homage to like an, an old friend or perhaps a lover uh, that she knew in her, in her time in New York, uh, as well as to a very specific time and place. Let's call it like the Lower East Side, um, East Village of New York. Um, uh, let's say before it got gentrified uh, to oblivion yeah. um the rent space uh, yeah yeah there you go yeah the rentiverse it takes place in the rentiverse right <laughs> um which i believe is semi autobiographical to her own experience of uh living in new york um it, it has very few depictions of quote unquote that new york uh i'm looking at a still the, the music video right now which has that corner bodega um with the lottery thing in the window and the um you know the, the consumer products uh, generic consumer products in the video, but also very colorful flowers that connect back to the past- pastel aesthetic of the music video. Um, uh, well, I'm going to circle back to the, 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 the aesthetics in just a second, but I do want to just sort of put out how I personally relate to this and why it's been so on my mind, um, uh, which is that uh, when I first moved to New York over 10 years ago, I lived uh, on St. Mark's Place and Avenue A, um, you know, kind of all situated within uh, uh, Astor Place, uh, which gets name checked and uh, which gets visually uh, landmarked in this video and First Avenue, like kind of all that was my neighborhood, and I have a very sort of strong uh, emotional connection to it. Not because I lived in the Rentiverse, um, you know, and that uh, I was frankly part of the gentrifying movement that <laughs> destroyed the Rentiverse, uh, but I, uh, like any, like every generation of New Yorker. Uh, lays claim to a specific time and place as being, you know, real or more authentic, and uh, and, and and laments its its passing. Um, so, and it's also just a beautiful song in and of itself. Um, it, it, in spite or perhaps because of the presence of Jack Antonoff, I don't know, Matt. You might have some things to say about that. Um, but uh, you know, so that all that is to say that this music video uh, speaks to me specifically because of some of the biographical and geographical connections that I had to it, uh, but it connects to our conversation because of a very similar pastel, bright color, purplish aesthetic going on. And I wonder if there's a connection between the two. So can I just raise one? I don't want to well actually or be rude. I I, I don't know how to describe these colors because I don't think they're pastel. They're not pastel. They're kind of like super high chroma, almost not and not exactly day glow, but they're I'd I'd call them like candy colors, sort of, you know, uh, that would be my description. I'm not a big color guy, you know, but like the kind of colors that you would expect to see in like Austin Powers. 
uh, or in a 60s kind of thing, right? Like really shiny, pink, glossy, uh, saturated, intense pinks and purples and blues, whereas pastel would be less saturated and, and kind of paler, almost not quite grayed, but almost like with a white transparency a little bit just to soften it up. Um, Right. And, yeah. And, and to the point, to the point, that, oh, to the point that you made about um, about Caribbean islands b- before, like these are the colors that you see in like during some of the shots, the like the aerial shots in in the video for Despacito or something like that. Right. Like um, right, not the right. not the dance party uh, in the middle of the in the middle of the little <laughs> village. But um, right, right. Anyway. Yeah, so, the, so, yeah. Right. So. So. OK. Go ahead. Well, that that. Uh, I I uh, sorry I forget where I forget where I was going with this, but like the the idea I mean the idea of realness you know what it it looks like to me this music video looks like a Target ad right because Target <laughs> does this does this thing in some of their like video ads which I guess I only see online um, where they do these like monochromatic compositions of Target products uh, you know whether it's red to match the brand color or whether it's you know another color that that is prominent in the uh in the products or the clothes or the the housewares or uh or whatever and and it's uh i mean the the um the contrast between sort of artificiality and composition and an idea of sort of naturalness or getting back to a more authentic uh state is is pronounced in 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 the video, right? Like, because there's a there's a sort of claim about and when you say New York isn't New York without uh, without you, love, which is the first line in the song. Um, and uh, when you talk about the, there are sort of two claims being made. One is about uh, having or not having a relationship, and the the other is about authentic authenticity versus artificiality in a uh, in a place or a. Um, in a place or a community, and the the idea that like the loss of one leads to the loss uh, of of the other is is not it doesn't really follow right that 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 would be the case. It's more like my feelings about New York are not my feelings about New York uh, without you, love. Right? Like I I see in a different way rather than the the underlying nature of the thing. Um, being changed uh and you know i don't know perspective is is sort of foregrounded in in this video or the kind of the ways in which perspective is constructed like one of the early shots is like looking down on someone's leopard print leotard and tights as they do yoga or maybe just stick their butt in the air for some reason uh or you know there are a couple of shots where like there's a uh a monochromatic backdrop brightly colored monochromatic backdrop that would be um you know that that would be uh would seem like the whole world except that you see that it's hanging on uh, a photographic backdrop stand right you see that it's like a, a paper backdrop that's that's clipped to to a rail at the top um and uh as you sort of as you sort of go through these things the 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 ways in which um the ways in which these tableau are are constructed is uh is foregrounded and and is to me the kind of the kind of subject of the video in the way that a bad love affair is the subject of the song interesting i definitely connected with that in the video this idea of the focus zooming in and zooming out so when we think about these colors why do you make something bright pink or any of these colors you may you want to make it beautiful Right, you want to make it beautiful. You dye something. You dye a fabric. You paint a wall. You do these things to make the place beautiful. And there is a simple and straightforward authenticity to this act that you can see. But then there's so much color in the world now because dye is so readily available, and almost every building is painted in some way or colored in some other way. That there's also these ideas of a world where everything is already colorful, everything is already beautiful, and that not speaking authentically to your experience as a person. And I felt like Florida Project and New York were doing similar things with their bright colors, but the mechanisms were different. And for me, 
New York was about like I remember living in New York and I remember hanging out in that part of New York at the time that you guys are talking about, which is not really the Rentiverse. I kind of mischaracterized it. It's like five years after the Rentiverse. At right? least, it's, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like we're talking about like the era of um, of crunk music and and kind of like the resurgence of the uh, kind of club scene down in the East Village after the real estate collapses of the late '90s and and all that stuff. So. And before, we're talking about the the, the sort of ascend, ascendant uh, gentrifying uh, phase of the bling bubble, <laughs> but the early phases of it. And when I think about color and bright, bright, like especially color of sort of bright and vivid nature, and I think about the things that are depicted in this video, I think about you having like one possession that's sort of like that, or one article of clothing that's like that, and the rest of everything around you being dark. I think of it being a place where everybody was very close, and where people mostly went out at night, not during the day, where there were not big parks, where there were not big apartments, where there were certainly not large spaces that you could light in a uniform manner. That's much more California. The idea that you could have a big room that's all painted pink with sunlight streaming in from all directions, which is sort of like how the St. Vincent video looks, is more of a California style or a Miami style than a New York style, where the sunlight's a little more severe and is going to be coming in through slots and windows. And so what that makes me think is that St. Vincent, the video is capturing individual ideas of sort of small things, small pieces of memory that you might have encountered in some place in that time, and then blowing them out and seeing like what a whole world made of that one memory would look like. Like that one time where she's sitting on the construction beam that's sticking out. She yeah. might have only done that once. I mean, she's echoing the famous picture of the New York workers that are hanging out on the beam eating lunch while they're building the Brooklyn Bridge or the Empire State Building or whatever, right? The one that right. you can get in your dorm room if you want. And uh, along with your black black, black key. <laughs> black cat picture <laughs> or your picture or your mugshot of frank sinatra which is the one i had um really no uh, uh no che guevara no uh no bob marley no you know look i i look i'm i, I like i like the florida project but i'm not going to say that i agree with its ideologies <laughs> like see it it's good it's not how i would organize things and in particular i i think much 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 more positively about social workers than this movie does uh, i think social workers are awesome and crapping on them is the is the ultimate act of moral cowardice but putting that aside uh i i came there not to praise caesar i don't even know the point is there isn't a place where there are a hundred different construction beams where a hundred different hipsters can sit on them eating a hundred different sandwiches, <laughs> right? Like, uh, although I don't think St. Vincent is actually eating a sandwich when she's sitting on the she's, construction beam. She's reading a newspaper. Reading a newspaper, uh, yeah. right? Right, which is itself an act of memory at this point for the most right, part. Indeed. Um, but so the notion, the idea of a notional space where everyone gets to simultaneously relive their New York memory fantasy because there's just a giant wall Wall that's full of just so exposed construction work that everybody can authentically perch on at the same time uh, is an interesting one right? uh, I mean, and New related. Yeah. yeah. New York sort of functions like Disney in this connection because the idea is that it is a uh, it is a sort of official fantasy that you can yoke your personal fantasy to, right? Mm, that right. you, that everyone has a New York story. And like Mark said, like everyone, you know, it's sort of like with technological progress, right? Like, uh, the great thing that Douglas Adams said that like everything that, that, uh, was there when you were a child is, you know, right and proper. Everything that, that was developed while you were a young adult is new and magical. And everything that was invented after you were 40 is alienating and, 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 uh, you know, these kids today in their rainbow parties, the, the whole, the, their, their candy, the, these kids today and their candy colored backdrops, um, the right, like, uh, you can, you can sort of settle on your time in New York as being like, that was the ideal configuration of sort of economic and social forces in the city. It always should have been, and always will, should continue to be like that when that's, you know, that's never been true of any place ever, um, you know, if you look and, and again, it's about zooming in or zooming out. Like if you're, if you're very zoomed in, it, it may look like nothing is changing, but you, you're not zoomed out far enough to see the kind of larger forces working, uh, 
uh, working working around you. And so that like um, the sort of function, the sort of function of New York it, it is that's how that that kind of projection, that like uh, psychological projection, can work. Where it's like, well, part of my story of New York is that I was young and in love, right? Or I, you know, I had this relationship that the, through that mediated a lot of my relationship to the space around me, and that that um, absent that, right, without that relationship it's it's as though the space is different and to a certain extent the space is different because it is a sort of space that admits to uh personal uh personalization right uh it's like you know it's like the nike website where you can pick the color of your sneakers um and that's uh you know and everyone can they're the same for everyone but they're also different for everyone yeah let me take a moment and uh expand on another uh, important visual in in this music video for those who, who might not be so familiar with it, because I think it illustrates a lot of the things that we're talking about here, which is the big black cube that uh, the artist St. Vincent is, is spinning in here. And so one of the shots you see early on is like a woman in a leotard with the pink legs and you're kind of like looking at her butt uh, and her sister leg sticking out of some sort of hole. Later on, it's revealed that the, this, the, the, the hole is part of this big sculpture, which is a big black cube. Uh, that is an Astor Place, right? Which is uh, immediately adjacent to this neighborhood that we're talking about here. Which, um, to just kind of summarize what we're talking about before, had a rich history of uh, being um, home to a lot of immigrants and artists and, and that sort of thing, and has rapidly gentrified over the last 15, 20 years, uh, my present company included. Um, so this big black cube, though, uh, it's a, it's a fun thing to see, and uh, you can actually, it's like you know, situated on. A point so that you can spin it um, because it's 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 built to rotate like that, um, and it's uh, it's the kind of thing that you look back on and idealize uh, because it's just this odd piece of sculpture because it sits as this kind of uh, gateway. It's a bit of like a, almost like a Statue of Liberty to um, to the New York Harbor that is the East Village um, at that at that time. And um, but the 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 reality of going to it and spinning it is that well, there's probably other people around it. There's probably a drunk or a homeless person uh, that's sitting next to it um, for a while. Uh, the thing like the, the thing was just kind of taken away for um, uh, for renovation, um, and that uh, uh, it, it's uh, it, it's not quite as impressive, I guess, um, to. Uh, to or romantic to to spin the big Astor Place cube, and what we see here in this video is um, a fantastical recreation of it. Um, it might be the real thing; I'm not really sure. But there's this you know big, huge, bright pink sheet that's hung underneath it. We got this green smoke that's billowing around. Um, that basically, uh, if I'm if I'm understanding the the themes of what we're talking about here, is this. Uh, a, Disney-like re- re- uh, the fantasy image of New York. Yeah, um, that is uh, not really how you remembered it. Not really how it's possible to attain now, yeah. but still it is in its own weird way uh, a-, a real thing because people imagine it so. Yeah. So a couple things to add about the cube. The two for those with no experience with it, and especially nowadays, I don't think. Again, you. I don't think you can have the same experience with it now that you used to. The two notable things about the cube. One, it's right by a subway stop. Uh, well, three notable things. One, it's right by a subway stop. Two, the a lot of the places that you might go in that neighborhood to go party on a weekend night would be a fair distance away from the subway stop with no other subway stops close to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then three, the, this is a part of New York where the street numberings break down. And where, like, between, because the numberings, they started at Houston Street, and in the and then they move upward from there. They move northward from there. But on the east side, between Union Square and Houston Street, really what I'm talking about is the lower east side of New York, there's an entirely different system of numbering the streets and that, that sort of starts and stops in a different section. And then there's an intermediate space where streets that would normally have numbers have names instead. So in the era before Google Maps it would be pretty tricky to find the specific spot where you were going to find your friends if you were to go into that place. So all of these three factors make the cube a meeting place. The cube is a place to meet people. It is a place to meet people that you know before you go out into the East Village and go have your party. And thinking of it as a place to meet people 
and then think of the thinking of a sort of raised female butt that's bright pink, like a makes me think of like a baboon, right? Is that is that like the act of meeting, the act of presenting? And this is a song that's about how all, the vast majority of sexual relationships that you get into when you're in New York are meaningless for for this in, in St. Vincent's particular uh, experience and a, probably a broad cultural experience. I can't speak for it myself. Um, I didn't really have that many sexual experiences in New York despite living there for a long time, um, which is a whole other kettle of fish that we won't get into in this podcast but the point being that i felt like the raised butt was an idea of like we're going out there trying to find it's, it's like it's like the journey song right like street lights people reading just to find emotion and hiding somewhere in the night right except it's this like dark cynical parody of it where it's it's you know people are trying to put out the bright pink signal that they're looking and what are they going to find when is they this, find it? it is this a dark parody is it a an earnest love letter to New York? Like, what exactly is is going on here? This is what I'm having trouble uh, understanding. I think I, I feel like St. Vincent's face, and like the performance. And again, I, I speak I speak interchangeably about St. St. Vincent the musical act and the singer of St. Vincent, right? Who is is, is is that's her name, right? Yeah, like she goes Ann, Annie she, Clark. Yeah, that's Ed, Annie Clark goes by. That's her stage name for yeah. the thing. So it refers to her. It refers to her person yeah. or this well, char- it, yeah. this character, I suppose, that she is when when she's uh, you know inhabiting her stage name. Yeah, because Saint Vincent is something of a character, Bowie esque, you could say, sure. and it's sort of like a transformative character. And Saint Vincent never seems all that earnestly and sincerely excited by anything that she does. And everything is kind of alienated a little bit. There's a lot of enthusiasm. There's a lot of excitement. But there's always this sense of disenchantment that is uh, kept in an ironic opposition. uh, Or not an ironic. I mean, it's ironic, but it's not um, hipster ironic. It's a a more – a deeper sort of irony. You know, it's – yeah, an ironic juxtaposition to the excitement of being in New York is the sort of emotional exhaustion of looking back at your memory and your sense of loss at the fact that you don't have it anymore. Um, like New York was almost too present at the time for you to fully experience and you're only experiencing it through memory and you kind of know your memory is fake. So you're sort of nonplussed with that. Uh, maybe a criticism is better than a parody, although it's not strictly a criticism either. A misreading, a, a strong misreading. I don't know, Matt, how would you characterize it? <laughs> is it, sorry, I got, I got, uh, uh, I got stuck on nonplussed. The, the, <laughs> <laughs> did I use it wrong? I thought I used it correctly that time because nonplussed means like blase, right? No, it, means, it, sur- mean- it means surprised. Oh, okay, okay. I always get that one wrong. Then, okay, got it. <laughs> yeah, I know that's that 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 and penultimate are are just yeah. two that I can't. Uh... Um, that I can't uh, help but trip over. Um, but yeah, the hmm. I, so I'm I, so I'm struck by something that that I want to bring up, which is something that I saw uh, that I saw this week. Let me put something on the table and let's see if we can make sense of it all all together. Because um, I too experienced a uh, a place themed work of entertainment uh, this week, and when I went to see uh, my friend Rhea Yarbrough, who has been a guest on an early episode of this podcast, talking about an album that she released all God, nine years ago, uh, I went to see an album release show for uh, an album that she's recorded called North of Sunset, West of Vine which is an autobiographical record uh, about uh, her time in Hollywood. And when I say her time in Hollywood, I mean the actual literal geographic uh, place. As a girl, she grew up, and uh, you know, I, I, we have known each other since we were kids, so, so I sort of knew about a lot of this at the time. She grew up uh, with her dad having an apartment in Hollywood, uh, and he was a musician, and he would play at bars, clubs, uh, different kinds of venues um, through Throughout that neighborhood, uh, uh, along Sunset Boulevard, along Hollywood Boulevard, and you know, uh, those are the two kind of east-west, big east-west streets that that uh, kind of are central to this particular neighborhood. So uh, the the album title "North of Sunset, West of Vine" um, is. Uh, you know, uh, it, it d- delineates or d- describes a particular geographic area. Um, and it, so as she was, you know, 10, 11, 12, something like this, she started singing uh, 
in these clubs alongside her alongside her dad um and she it's an autobiographical record kind of about the the atmosphere of the time which is definitely uh sort of florida project-esque um in that uh it in in that is it is a not exactly a cd underbelly but kind of a demimond you know sort of a sort of a like uh an underworld um a little bit uh certainly a place that that a child is 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 kind of inappropriate for a child but is also in itself not particularly harmful uh is just a non is a sort of non disney in the shadow of you know the idea of hollywood the ultimate you know the ultimate sort of fantasy making uh enterprise and some of the characters that that there there's some songs about the the various people who were kind of the regulars in uh, the regulars in this place, and so I, you know, I went to see this this album release show. I I think it's a really good album. I think it has very good songwriting, very interesting production. Um, sort of like uh, sort of like Saint Vincent. It's a record that that moves into a more not exactly poppy, but a more experimental electronic. Uh, well, St. Vincent's is more poppy because Jack Antonoff is all over it. And hey, it has a piano ballad in the middle. Surprise, surprise. Um, but Ray's record is, uh, th- there are just more, you know, production elements in it that, that take it away from kind of a pure jazz thing, uh, and into a more jazz pop, um, or, you know, kind of unique, uh, songwriting space. I mean, I think you should get this album and, and listen to it when it, when it comes out. But the thing that struck me is the thing that struck me that, that is missing from from the St. Vincent uh, record and the the um, the Florida project uh, is the aspect of time, right? Like if it was uh, if it was Brooklyn Prince's character in the Florida project, like looking back on that time thirty years later, like uh, you yeah. you you won't believe the way I grew up, you know. Right. Or if it were if it were St. Vincent talking about you know decades ago, I I lost this love and it was like New York wasn't new york without uh without this relationship you know that that um that that aspect of time uh really sort of alters the meaning and really like by kind of robbing mm, by by sort of uh robbing the experience of its kind of authority and, and immediacy and giving it a little bit of perspective by sort of times times great zoom out you know like you get to see these things and the idea of sort of dolly the the barfly who was probably a sex worker but who was just always around and like you know it was clear that she was you know she was uh uh seedy but she always looked out for me in the bar you know and like uh once or twice saved me from the inappropriate attentions of some some bar patrons and things like this like this all this stuff was um you know, uh, can, can be addressed in a more, mm, I don't want to say objective because it's very subjective, but can be, can be addressed in a, uh, in, in a, in a less, um, crisis oriented kind of way. And in a more, and in a way that's, that's a little more concerned with, with what it all meant and, and even, uh, you know, even, what it all was right so i think that if the i mean i think that if there is kind of a misreading in the um that that you know pete is alluding to in the kind of the what interpretive stance of new york uh by saint vincent it's that like there hasn't been yet maybe enough time right like uh to really figure out what's or to really figure out the significance of of things, because very often those those things don't really reveal themselves uh, until they're well and truly done. Hey, Matt, Matt this all sounds great. I, I want to know a little bit more on a basic, superficial level about the style of this album and this music. Like, what is it like? Is it a rock? Is it electronica? Is it what? What is this? Uh, is it east of Hollywood, north of Vine? I always get lost in, when I go driving. <laughs> so first, tell me how to get there, and second, tell me like what this album is like, and and also we should probably post a link so you can listen to it or get it somewhere in our uh, yeah. In our it's show not. Notes. Uh, it's not. It's not totally released yet, but I think there's some videos or or okay. uh, introductory tracks or or things like that online. Well, th- I mean, it's it's a record. It is. It's performed by. 
by uh, essentially by a jazz band. Um, oh, oh, see, see, that's that's very different. Okay, got you it. You know, got gu- it. guitar-based drums, uh, uh, piano, uh, vocalist, background vocalist, um, but also with uh, the the with also some like electronic elements some sampling some like city sounds like soundscapes and some stuff like stuff like that i would call it a uh i would call it it kind of straddles the the it's like it's at the four corners states of the four states of uh you know jazz pop rock and and singer songwriter um and and leans different tracks lean in different directions uh at different times depending on the uh the atmosphere that they're trying to uh that they're they're trying to achieve um now north of sunset uh refers to the area that is immediately north of sunset boulevard uh and west of vine refers to the area that's that's uh west of uh vine avenue so so uh this is um you know a strip of uh, a strip of sort of two blocks that runs east west in in hollywood that where you know there's restaurants bars clubs uh still i mean still to this day even though uh, hollywood down you know that that area has been times squared a little bit is still you can still see the kind of uh the seediness um and it's a place unlike disneyland it's a place where like if there's a if there's a sign with bright light bulbs around it at least one of the light bulbs is burned out you know if there's if there's a, a neon sign at least one of the letters is flickering and this this is like uh completely um uh completely antithetical to the uh disney family of parks where they you know replace all the light bulbs every night or at least check all the light bulbs every night to uh to make sure that there's not a single blemish um a single blemish on the the experience i mean it's i you know it's called tinsel town right and like the 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 atmosphere of sort of tinsel or sort of reflection or like a cracked mirror or something is is the sort of image that that occurs on this album a lot um because it's you know it's both uh glam or it's at least a gesture at something that is that is glamorous or that is decorated um that is ornamented uh and also also um is a little decrepit uh and and a place of of you know uh not a safe place like a place of threat and uh, instability uh as 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 well and and um and it's also sort of no uh you know this is no country for young young children uh that the uh the 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 sort of milieu is not really a disney like the idea that that you find you ought to find the the idea that you ought to find children in a disneyland is uh is belied by the the places that you actually do find children all around you know cool <laughs> Mark, go ahead. I can hear you like st- stammering in the back, like no. overwhelmed by all this feeling. So many emotions. I know. There's a lot. There's a lot to talk about here, and it seems like we're, we're about to, towards the end of this episode. But um, where we last left uh, our conversation around the St. Vincent, New York video was, uh, was a slightly unresolved question around the sense of ironic distance uh, that St. Vincent had from her subject of New York, and whether this was, you know, a a, a whether her song was an earnest. Uh, sort of love letter to it or uh, just all kind of undercut by a lot of the imagery uh, that you see in the video. Um, Matt, uh, for what do you feel like is uh, Ray Yarbrough's um, relationship then with this particular section of Hollywood and her time in it? Does she have ironic distance from it? Is it sort of more earnest um, celebration, but also sort of lamentation uh, of the things that were not so great about it. Well, this is uh, this is an interesting thing, right? Like, not all distance is ironic, uh, and that that I think I, I think that the idea of ironic distance and, and distance in general is an important uh, is an important distinction. And the, the you know, well, it, this actually relates to something that you said earlier, Mark, where about where where you're from, you know, uh, would you say, I mean, 
well, I, I'm going to say on your behalf that when when I think of you and when I think of your character, I think of the character of a New Yorker. You're uh, cosmopolitan. You're culturally curious. You're you know. Um, uh, go on, go on. <laughs> Thank so, you, Matt. You know what I mean? Sort of urban, like a lot. Uh, yeah. uh, you All take you take advantage of of the stuff um, that's that's in the city. But I but I would venture to say, and this is the part where I wouldn't want to put words in your mouth, but I would venture to guess um, that though you have a lot to criticize about the the environment uh, in the South that you grew up in, um, that it's a part of you and it's inescapable because it's it formed you and you can't you can't kind of you can't sort of try try as we might over and over and over and over unsuccessfully you kind of can't remodel your childhood. Yes, one hundred percent true. And Absolutely that, correct. I mean, I think that that's the. Um, that's the 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 interesting thing right like in in i think that's that's the interesting thing about about this record i think it's a sort of a, an artistic uh, attempt the uh, the record that that Rhea made is that it's an artistic attempt to understand oneself by looking at where one has been you know and uh in the in the saint vincent thing is like well is this a love letter to new york or is it you know or does it have ironic distance it's like well are those are those really are those really the only two options right cuz like not all letters are love letters no. you, know? No. <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> and to me like a little bit new york is an isn't even it's called new york but to me it's not even the the uh is not even the the subject of a song. I, I, to me, it's a little more about like the way a um, uh, the way a loss can change your uh, the way a loss can can change your perception of the world. Um, the the chorus being like I've lost a hero, I've lost a friend, and the way that that it's you know it can sort of make the world seem like a different place, even though the world is exactly the world that that it was um, that it was all the time. But Matt, I want to make it about New York because it name checks specific places that I have strong emotional connections to. Yeah, can I have that? Yeah, no, you go. It's <laughs> you know that. what the author, the author is dead. You know, it's St. Vincent's New York has a public meaning, but we all kind of yoke our private meanings to it, and they yeah. uh, they're out there. They're out there. They exist in the. Um, uh, they're out there. They exist in the uh, in the ether, and and no one can tell you that you're wrong, especially not you and you, Pete. Yeah. Okay, you can actually. Not, <laughs> no, 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 not a West. No. Not a, no, no one. No one can tell you that that you're wrong, and that's probably a good note to end the overthinking it podcast on. Remember, if you've learned one thing in this hour that we've been talking, it's that no one can tell you that that you're wrong. So you know, go out and and paint your walls magenta. Paint every paint every window frame bright blue, robin's egg blue. Don't paint the actual glass blue. No, that, that would no. be, yeah, unless you're trying to black out the light. Go out there and oddly provocatively stroke a large goose by the neck. Because <laughs> that's the thing that happens in the St. Vincent video. You haven't seen the Florida Project, have you? <laughs> no, no, I there have are, not. There are major scenes with birds with very long necks. North of Sunset West of Vine is entirely goose-free. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, <laughs> that's the, the the crucial element that that uh, that separates the the all these works is their um, relationship to waterfowl. <laughs> all right, let's call it. Uh, this was the Overthinking It podcast. Thanks very much for listening. We'll be back with more next week. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve.